Amen. Good to see you all this morning. Good morning. I'm going to invite you to take your Bibles and go to Colossians chapter 1. And while you turn your Bible there, I just appreciate so much the worship team, Pastor Dan leading us in worship to prepare our hearts for God's Word. I have to admit, it, it is just always a joy to hear you sing. It just fills the soul and reminds us that we sing together uh, and we worship our Savior. Um, and so this morning, uh, as we go to Colossians chapter 1, we're going to begin reading here in verse 24 in just a minute, and we're going to come to the end of chapter 1, and then we're going to go usually in between chapters, but I wanna, I'm going to carry us through next week through a little bit of chapter 2, then, then we're going to break for something I call Psalm Sunday, not Palm Sunday, but Psalm Sunday, and we're, we're just going to put a bookmark in our study through Colossians and, and just worship the Lord through the psalm, um, through the psalm, one of the psalms. And so um, anyway, just looking forward to that as we march into this new year together. Colossians chapter 1, and uh, the title of the message today is The Labor of Gospel Ministry. I'm going to have you stand as we read God's word together. The Bible says, Now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is, the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me from you to make the word of God fully known. The mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy, that he powerfully works within me. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And we ask now that you will bless your word in the preaching of your word, that you will demonstrate the power of the Holy Spirit, that you will illuminate the text, that you will fill our hearts with your truth, and that you will enable us to respond. And for those that may, not be, that may be here that are not saved, that you would draw them to yourself in salvation through your Son. And for every believer, that we will be strengthened, encouraged, and equipped to uh, do your will. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. When I became a school teacher many years ago, one of my final assignments in my program was to write what was called a philosophy of education paper. Now, I have no idea if that still happens today, but back then I had to do that, and it would go into my teacher's portfolio, and we were told that one day that we may be asked to present that and so I wrote that, and basically that philosophy of education, it, it highlighted what teaching is all about. It was kind of your definition of teaching, your explanation of the role of the teacher, and the best practices that I had learned from, for the classroom, from those that I observed and those that mentored me. Well, actually over the years, I have up updated that document and I have actually been asked from time to time to present a, a philosophy of education in the teaching world. 
Uh, and I would imagine and, uh, that every profession or trade has a philosophy or a basic job description. I think all of us in this room can relate to that. And really, ministry is no different. The text that we just read here in verse 21, 24 through 29, is basically Paul's ministry job description. That's basically what it is. It, it is a passage that has become uh, very important to me personally, shaping the way I understand the call to preach and the role of the minister of the gospel. It is especially important for the church. It was important then when Paul wrote this letter to this particular church in this little town. And it is important to us today when we are prone to allow consumerism, entertainment culture, and business philosophy to overshadow our understanding of biblical ministry. What is biblical ministry? We should be able to answer that question from the Bible. We should not have to answer that question from the business world or from entertainment or consumerism. Well, this this part of the opening of the letter is helpful for the Colossian believers because they are facing all sorts of pressure to make something else other than Christ and the message of the gospel to be their primary focus. The reason Paul's writing this, and you're going to see that in weeks to come, is that there are people who are, who are creeping into the church and there are voices outside of the church that would have the people in the church to believe that there is something else that should have primary focus or supremacy among them. Not only should this text for us today shape our understanding of pastoral ministry, of what we expect of those that minister to us, what we read today and what we walk through today should guide us as a church so that we will maintain a Christ-centered ministry. We want a Christ-centered ministry. Now, when we go to verse 24, Paul has already given us a clear vision of who Jesus is. A, a glorified, the, he, he has given us a vision of the glorified person and the gracious work of Christ. And then when you come to the end of verse 23, and if you have your Bibles, you can see this. Paul, after he describes Christ's work on the cross as the basis of our reconciliation with God, verse 23 he says, This gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and on which I, Paul, became a minister. So Paul states there at the verse, end of verse 23, after this big vision of Jesus, that he became a minister of the gospel. The good news about this Christ, who's the exalted Son of God. And then, in verse 24, he then just presents to them his ministry. He just presents to them his, ministry, his gospel ministry. And he describes his labors, his work, what he has done. It is his philosophy of ministry, divinely inspired by the Holy Spirit, so that the Colossian church, and consequently every church, including us, will know what is most important. 
And so, here's the key truth that you need to walk away with this morning. We labor in gospel ministry to make Christ supreme. So that everyone will be complete in Him. I mean, that really is a summary of this, of this section. We labor, we do what we do, whether it's preaching in the pulpit or the teaching in the classrooms or the discipleship and evangelism that takes place outside of these four walls. We must do what we do to make Christ supreme so that everyone will be complete in Him. And so what we want to do this morning is we want to look at Paul's ministry and we want to ask, okay, how was this accomplished? What would we say describes his ministry? Or what would, what would we say should be our philosophy of ministry? And you can take these four things and you can really grid them not only over what we do as a church, but what we do as believers and how we live. We're going to look at four things. We suffer for Christ. We, we steward the word of God. We preach the gospel to everyone and we rely on the power of God. Those four things will be the four things that we see describe the labor of gospel ministry. Let's look at the first one. Number one, we suffer for Christ. Notice what Paul says. Now he's talking personally, so he's using the personal pronoun I. And he says, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. Now pay close attention to that. And in my flesh, that is his body, I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body that is the church. So it becomes clear in Paul's ministry that there was a amount of suffering that took place. So the very first thing we should just recognize is, is the reality of suffering. Keep in mind, Paul is writing from prison. And writing from prison, he has endured a quite a, a significant amount of suffering and affliction. In fact, he's under house arrest as he writes this. However, he had also experienced beatings with whips and rods. He'd been stoned three times and left for dead. He had even, he had even been shipwrecked. He encountered thieves and angry mobs. Often he experienced hunger and thirst, as well as the threat of natural elements. Most significantly, the greatest threats he actually faced as a minister of the gospel was by those who, stop, who sought to stop the preaching of the gospel and those he was trying to reach with the gospel. So, so in essence, all those things could summarize the suffering he experienced, but the two most significant things came from people who wanted to stop him from advancing the gospel, and it came from those he was trying to reach with the gospel. You can read all that in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Now the reason why it's helpful to under, for us to understand that is because all who will live godly, everyone who will commit their lives to Jesus Christ will experience suffering. I mean, that, that is the implication here. Paul himself experienced that. Why should we expect anything less? And often, the suffering that is experienced is hostility from others because of your Christian faith. Jesus said, because the world hated him, they'll also hate you. So we should just simply expect as Christians, if, you've be, if you're a Christian this morning, if you have become a Christian this morning, all of your problems did not go away. 
In fact, what might have happened, some of your problems very well intensified. Or there, was new, there were new problems added to your life. The scriptures are abundantly clear. Christ does not come into our life and then, and then begin to expel suffering and difficulty. In fact, because of him, there will be those things that we will experience. And it is a reminder to us today that, that if you're a believer today, you're out of step with the culture. I mean, you're just out of step. We, we are out of step with the, the dominating worldview that drives everything in our society. And, and, and we don't need to be militant about that. We just need to be aware of that. And we certainly shouldn't be surprised when we speak for Christ or we articulate what Scripture has clearly revealed. We, we shouldn't be surprised when people don't like that. I mean, we don't want to make people angry, but we certainly want to be clear on what the truth is and what the gospel is. And so Christians, I mean, this is intensified in other places. Christians in countries like China, North Korea, Afghanistan, India, Iran, they face violent persecution because of their faith in Christ. And though we have not experienced that in this country, we should, as, as Christians, we shouldn't be surprised when people who don't know God do not agree or do not walk in step with what we confess as believers. But it's also important to understand that we realize, that we realize the reality of suffering means that it's experienced both outward and inward. We face the battle with, I mean, it's not just hostility we face. How many of you walked through your week this past week battling temptation, struggling with sickness, as well as cares of family and church? As one author says, life is hard in this fallen world. And every aspect of our life demonstrates that. There are truly dangers, toils, and snares, along with fears, doubts, and uncertainties that accompany, that, in, that we encounter as Christians. Just this past week, a church planner uh, a church planner and minister with Na- North American Mission Board perished in a plane crash. All of these things I just simply mentioned are, 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 are highlighted in the New Testament. And the point is that suffering is real with many different faces. What is it for you? What is it for you? So Paul here says, listen, I have suffered. But he also, not, he doesn't just give us the, the reality of suffering. He gives the reason for his suffering. Look what he says. He says in the text, he says, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake. And in my flesh, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction for the sake of his body, that is, the church. In other words, Paul says, I'm suffering for you. He personalizes this for the church. And it is because it is his desire for the church to benefit and be built up in such a way that they will see in Paul the supreme worth of Christ. And in other words, I endure these things, I experience these things free on your behalf so that you will see that Christ is my supreme treasure. Notice what he says. He says, I am filling up in his body what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of the body of the church. Now that gives people a bit of a kind of a, a double take, doesn't it? What could possibly be lacking in Jesus' suffering for us, right? So does this mean that what Jesus did on the cross lacked some 
something? Does it mean that, it, that his sacrifice on Calvary was deficient? It certainly does not. In fact, we know from other places that Christ's suffering on the cross was necessary to provide salvation for sinners. In fact, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is sufficient to atone for the sins of every believer throughout all time, in every place, until he comes. First Peter chapter 3, verse 18, For Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. So, so we, there you have it. He suffered once for sin, so that we could be brought with, to, to God. So, so what could be lacking in Paul's, in, in Christ's affliction? What does Paul mean when he says this? What he basically means is, is that, is that Paul suffers, suffering is necessary to proclaim salvation to sinners and form the church. It is part of our formation as believers. It just simply means that what is left to happen to us even after we are saved is to endure for a little while this light momentary affliction until that moment comes when we see Him in all His glory. I mean, that's what's left. And so Paul's suffering was necessary and therefore it highlights the greatness of the gospel. In other words, what else is there to live for? What else is there to die for? What is, there, what is worth suffering for? That's why we endure these things, Paul says. And so it, 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 it's kind of like this. Suffering in the believer's life will generally reveal a person's greatest treasure. It, it'll show what you value most. I like to go to graveyards, not for weird reasons. I just like to go to graveyards. Especially when I'm at like historical sites. Like I, I like going and looking at old tombs and reading what's on those gravestones. And there's, there's several churches. If you ever go to Gatlinburg and you go up into one, some of those old churches that are there uh, in the mountains, there, there's these graveyards. And I, I can remember this one particular tomb, uh, this, this small grave plot. And on it, and it said, faithful husband, loving father, devoted follower of Christ. I mean, that says it all. Right? I mean, that shows you what was most important to that individual that's in that grave. It is just an illustration that what we value most will come out in those moments of intense difficulty and hardship and suffering. I remember when my wife's grandfather passed away. Devoted believer. Faithful man. Just, just loved Jesus. And I can remember that when he was on his when he was on his deathbed, when it was time for him to go, we had one individual that was in our family who was not a believer, and 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 her grandfather was just a he he was just a a classic simple evangelist, always telling people about Jesus. And, and I'll never forget it as we were gathered there. He, he was he was sedated, and when he would come to, he would open his eyes and he would look up at this one family member who was without Christ, and he would say to him believe on Jesus and he'll save you and then he put his head back down and then he'd come back to like 10 minutes later and he'd say the same thing over and over again reminding uh, reminding all of us there what really is most important you begin to see in, in him as he was going 
the, the surpassing treasure that Christ, the all surpassing treasure that Christ is. And that's why Paul says this. And so that's why Paul says his response. What is his response to suffering? We're going to suffer the reality of it. We see the reason for it to show the, the, that Christ is our treasure. But look what he says. He says, I rejoice in my sufferings for you. Philippians 3.8, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So I ask you this question, what is your treasure? What do you treasure most? And may we pray this way, that through our suffering, we show others the supreme joy and treasure that Christ is. That's how we, that's how we apply this. How can God use what you're going through to show others the work, the worth of Christ? How can it encourage other believers to endure and persevere? So if you want to know one mark of faithful laboring and gospel ministry, it's this, we'll suffer. And we suffer for the sake of the body of Christ. And those that are called into the ministry of the gospel are to give themselves in such a way that whatever they endure is for the benefit of Christ's church. But there's a second thing that we see. Not only does Paul say we suffer for Christ, but we also steward the word of God. Look at verse 25. Here's a second mark of the labor of gospel ministry. Verse 25, he says, of which, okay, so it's kind of one continuous sentence in the English. He says, I'm filling up what is lacking in Christ's affliction, for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which, of which what? Of which the church, I became a minister. According to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you to make the word of God fully known. Let's just pause for a second. So the second mark of the labor of gospel ministry is that we steward the word of God. We suffer, but we steward the word. Notice in verse 25, Paul shows you that God is the source of his stewardship. He is a minister of the church according to the stewardship that God has given him on their behalf. Now here's what's interesting. Paul uses the word minister to describe his role. Think about that for a second. Minister. Another way to translate that would be servant. It comes from the word diakonos, which we get servant or and, and then we also get deacon ministry or deacons. But, but my point is, is that I want you to see how Paul views his role. He views himself as a servant of the gospel who is a servant of the church. That's biblical ministry. A man of God is a servant of the gospel who is a servant of the church. Paul didn't view his role, he's not a celebrity. He doesn't say, you know, uh, I became a celebrity according to the stewardship given me. That's not what he says. He doesn't present himself as a leader with authority or a boss to tell people what to do. No, he just says, I'm a servant. That, That is critical to his view of himself. It illustrates the way the gospel has formed his humility. He doesn't view himself as a superior to his brothers and sisters. And no minister is. 
No pastor is. No one is better than the people he serves. Let me say it this way. No leader is better than the people he serves. And in no way does that diminish the point of God's call. God's call to preach the gospel is a glorious call. It is a wonderful call. It is a glorious privilege to serve and to minister to the people of God. But here's the point. I think what we need to be reminded of is that God calls jars of clay to preach his gospel. Jars of clay to preach, not build platforms, to promote themselves. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay. He doesn't say we have this treasure in in, in, in just wonderfully skilled and gifted guys. That's not what he says. With skinny jeans and really short hair. And that's, I mean, yes, doesn't describe me at all. But nevertheless, you get the point. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God, Paul says, not to us. The surpassing power is not in the skill or the ability or the oratory or the charisma or the talents. The power of God is in the word of God through the gospel of God by the spirit of God. And so what Paul is saying here is that, listen, uh, the source of my stewardship is not me creating a name for myself. It's just simply this. It is a stewardship that came from God in Acts chapter 9 on the road to Damascus when Jesus stopped him in his tracks, the risen Lord, and saved him from his evil, wicked tyranny to destroy Christianity and gospel churches, and Jesus converted him to himself. But if that's the source of the stewardship, what is the task? To make the word of God fully known. That's what he says. Listen, I'm a servant of the church. Okay, does that mean that he just does whatever, well, you know, whatever everybody, anybody tells him to do? No, he says, I am a steward. The stewardship I've been given is to serve the church to make the word of God fully known. That word stewardship refers to household management, administration. A steward would be a slave who managed the affairs of his master. Paul says, yes, I'm a servant of the church, but my master is Christ. And my task of the stewardship God has given me is to basically make the word of God fully known. That is the stewardship of the gospel minister. And that must be the stewardship of a gospel church. What does it mean to make the word of God fully known? I think one of the best ways to answer that question is to listen to Jesus himself. Do you remember on the road to Emmaus when he appeared to the disciples post-resurrection? And they were, they were walking to the town of Emmaus. Do you remember when Je- they didn't realize that it was Jesus? They didn't realize it was the risen Christ. And so they're walking along. And, and, and here's what Luke says, Luke 24. It says, then he, Jesus, said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. That everything written about me. Did you hear that? Everything written about me. In the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. 
And then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. In other words, Jesus gives us an idea of what it means to make the Word of God fully known. What it means is, is to preach Christ from the Word of God. Say it this way. While every verse in the Bible is not about Jesus. I'll be clear about that. While every verse in the Bible is not about Jesus, every verse in the Bible is a part of God's unfolding plan to present to us Jesus. Therefore, the Bible is all about Jesus. And that's what he says. It's all about me. If you ever understand the Bible as you're reading it through the course of a year, you need to understand first and foremost, it is about Christ. It is God's unfolding plan and purposes in Jesus. And our task is to make that fully known. And so Paul, he says, listen, here's, here's my, we are to steward the word of God. That stewardship comes from God himself. The truth of that stewardship is this. Here's the purpose of it. The purpose or responsibility of our stewardship is to make the word of God fully known. And here is the truth of that stewardship. Verse 26, read it. He then explains more clearly what he means. And it actually matches Luke chapter 24. If you, if you take time to go back in Luke 24 and read it, look what he says. The mystery hidden for the ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of, of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. So you know what Paul did here? Go to Luke 24 and just look at the parallel. Paul echoes Christ. The mystery hidden for ages and generations now revealed to the New Testament church is this. Christ, through Christ, salvation is for everyone, Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor. There are no more, there are no boundaries to the gospel. It is for everyone. So let me make it a little bit more, let me just say this simple. The mystery is this, you can be saved. (laughs) You can be saved. All of us can be saved through Christ and his finished work. That is astounding. It's not limited to just one particular group. Instead, the Jewish people were simply the vehicle through whom Christ would make his appearance into the world to bring salvation. Paul makes that clear in Romans chapter 9, Romans chapter 10. So by echoing this, he's showing us that we all... That, that the mystery that is now revealed is that Jesus is the Savior of the world. That is the simple way that we could put it. And then what he says is, he says, listen, the truth is, it, there's a glory to this mystery. Notice how he describes this. Christ in you. Which means that Christ indwells all believers, making us new creatures. God is forming a new humanity through the people he's saving. And it will be from every tribe, every nation, every people group. 
God is saving to himself a people, and in those people he dwells through the person of the Holy Spirit. And then he says the hope of glory, or the guarantee of future glory in the resurrection and life to come, when all things are made new. And so, so in other words, this right here, look around, this group of people, all of you and your salvation is a simple display a foretaste of the future glory. That if we together have all experienced salvation and the Spirit of God has indwelled every one of us who truly believe the gospel, Christ dwells in all of us and Christ dwells in all of his people. And when his people assemble as the church, there he dwells and there are the living stones of the church. If that's true, if he has raised us all from the dead spiritually, and saved all of us and made us new creatures, how much more will one day we be resurrected from the dead, receive new bodies, and live forever and ever with him on the throne? That's what Paul's saying. That's the hope. It's the guarantee of future glory. If you think this is glorious, wait till you get to heaven. Wait till you're in the kingdom that is to come. And you see all the people that God has saved through the work of his Son. How diverse and how glorious will that be? That's what it means to have a stewardship of the word. We are to make Christ known in such a way that then God uses making that known to save people. And so our stewardship of the word of God displays the supreme glory and hope of the gospel. What is the glory of the gospel? The fact that we're saved. What is the hope of that gospel? is that we will one day have future glory with him. So, how do we see the glory and hope of the gospel on display in our church? Well, we see it on display through our stewardship of the truth. By making sure that we pass along to the upcoming generations the truth of the gospel. By stewarding the word of God faithfully, not just corporately in the preaching and what we do in ministry, but think about it in your own lives. Christian parent, Christian, you, you are, you are a steward of the word of God. You have a, you have a table that is a pulpit in your home to lay in front of the next generation the gospel that has saved you in prayer that it will save them. Be a steward of the word of God. But that leads to a third thing. And it kind of sounds like a repetition of what we already said. But Paul is very good at repeating himself to drive home the point. Look what he says in verse 28. Him we proclaim. Christ in you, that's the mystery, the hope of glory. Him, Christ, we proclaim. And he says, Warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Okay, so let's review. The labor of gospel ministry is going to be characterized by the fact that we suffer for Christ, that we are stewards of the word of God, and then thirdly, we preach Christ to everyone. We preach Christ to everyone. Notice that Paul changes the pronoun from I to we. In other words, this isn't just his personal reflection on ministry. This is the blueprint. This is the job description. This is the grid that we've got to use to put over everything. Who do we proclaim? Christ we proclaim. Christ we proclaim, Paul says. He makes it personal for this church. 
It's the banner Paul gives the believers there. We, we don't preach a system of works. We don't preach a religion of rituals. We don't come to church to, to, to evaluate our manifesto of morality. No. We preach Christ. And Paul is clear. And the reason he has to be clear is because there's false teachers who are coming along and they're saying, now I get it. You've heard all about this thing about Jesus. And I'm, I'm sure you're kind of sick of hearing about Jesus and everything he's done. But check this out. If you follow my ten ways to fast, you will truly discover spiritual knowledge. I mean, that's his challenge. We hear this all the time today, don't we? He wants to counter all of that. Paul, Paul, we preach a person, and we preach his work. And any imperative or command that we're going to study as we go through Colossians, it all flows from the indicative. What he did is the cause of anything we do. It's critical. The only way to counter false teaching of all sorts is to proclaim Christ. And, and listen, when it says Christ we proclaim, it means it, it's not just that we mention Christ and the cross in passing so that we don't offend people. Well, we don't want to overemphasize the blood and the atonement and the resurrection and the deity and the humanity of Christ all, all fused into one being. We don't want to overemphasize that, right? No, no, we want to, we want to emphasize that continuously. We, you don't just come and hear a hint about Jesus so that we can trick people into becoming Christian. Just give you a little bit enough of Jesus so somebody will make, quote unquote, a decision. No, no, no. We wanna, we wanna put Jesus in front of everyone so that we, everyone knows who he is and what he's done and then bow before his lordship and surrender themselves to him. We dare not use Jesus as a means to some idolatrous end. Well, if you just take Jesus, well, then everything in your life will be all right. Well, we already proved that's wrong. Jesus is not a means to some other end. He is the end. He is the, he is the means and he is the end. What you get in salvation is you get him and all of his glory and all of his greatness and all of the hope and all of the wonder of his salvation. We preach Christ, the Christ of the gospel, 1 Corinthians 15. That he died for our sins according to the scriptures. That he was buried. And then on the third day he rose again. Christ is the center for everything. He is the true north of the church's compass. And he is the destiny of the journey that we're on. And we invite sinners to come to him. But he's not just the center, he's the reason for everything. And what you'll observe, which is the reason why I'm so grateful to be pastor of this church, is because we don't just preach the gospel, we teach the gospel. We sing the gospel. We pray the gospel. We take the gospel everywhere we go. We talk about the gospel. Even when we're done here, we are saturated with the gospel that's because we proclaim christ how do we proclaim christ look what he says warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom the word warning can also be translated admonishing i think that admonish is a really good word for us to think about 
we confront with the intent to change the attitude and actions. It is giving a direct course of action. Have you ever set your kids down at the table and said, now listen, you're going to take all the knowledge that you have and here's what you should do with this. That's the idea. You know the truth and what Paul says is we admonish everyone. We don't limit this to just a few. We admonish everyone. This is how you live in light of the gospel. We admonish. We might also say we encourage. We help each other with patience and love and understanding. But not only do we do that, is that how we proclaim? He says, we also teach everyone with all wisdom. Teaching means that we set forth a clear presentation of the truth, a pattern of words that will help people grow in their faith. That's why the church, all the way back to the apostles, used creeds and confessions and, and, and catechisms in order to teach the truth revealed in Scripture. That's how we proclaim Christ. But then lastly, why do we proclaim Christ? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. And that's the reason. That's the goal. Here's the end goal. We preach Christ, admonishing and teaching everyone. We leave no one out. We want to try to bring everyone along, even the ones that may be lingering and may be struggling. We want to try to bring everyone along in the gospel in their understanding of Christ, so that we can present everyone complete, perfect in Him. And the way we do that is by teaching the truth of Scripture as it points us to Jesus and then sheds light on the path on how we live. The gospel is not just for sinners to be forgiven, it's for saints to be made holy. It is the tool that we have been given to proclaim Christ. The goal is maturity. And when Christ shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found, dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. Maturity in Christ is the growing awareness of who he is and what he's done, and that transforming your life. And so that's why we must proclaim him. But there's a last thing. Before I give you the last thing, let me apply that just a little bit more closely for you. We proclaim Christ as the supreme reason for everything. Are we proclaiming Christ? What are we doing to help present everyone complete in him? Ask yourself, what are you going to do in your home this week? What ways are you investing in the lives of others around you so that people, so that those in your, have been trusted to you will be complete in Him. Fourthly and lastly, we rely on the power of the Spirit. Look at verse 29. Last, last thing, we suffer, we, are, we steward the Word, we preach Christ, we rely on the power of the Spirit. Verse 29, he says, For this I toil, struggling with all His energy that He powerfully works within me. Paul says, this is my passion. This is what I give my life for, so that people will be presented complete in Christ. That word toil, it it gives us another word in the English, agony, to agonize. It it, it is actually used, in it it is a, a word used in athletic imagery. We were at the basketball game last night, and it was a close game between Zane Trace and Yunyota. And you saw those guys, they were agonizing on that court, all the way down to the last second. 
It was agony. It was toiling. It was work. It was exerting energy. Same thing will happen tonight when the Bengals play. But that's a side story. Paul says, I toil. I labor. I work. I exert all of my energy to help believers grow deeper in the gospel. I want them to be full in Christ. He didn't say exert my energy so that I can have a larger platform, so that I can have greater influence, so that I can have more likes on social media. No, he says, I labor to this end so that they will become fully, that they will grow in their fullness of Christ. He exerts every bit of his energy. All the suffering he endures, all the teaching he does, all the preaching, all the traveling, all the counseling, all the praying, all of it so that they will be mature, complete in Christ. He exerts all of his energy. But yet in the end, his energy does nothing. Look what it says. With all his energy. I exert, but it's his energy that powerfully works within me. Sounds like I just empty myself because I'm nothing. In the end, Paul understood that any outcome, any result of the labor of gospel ministry is because of Christ working in him. Luther said in the end, when at the end of his life, with all that had happened with the Reformation, he said, I did nothing. The word did it all. Spurgeon, the great pastor in London, England, said this about this very verse. He said, my brothers and sisters, let us live while we live a life of energy. But let us at the same time confess when we have done all that we are unprofitable servants and that there, if there is any glory, any praise resulting from the work which we achieve, let us be careful to lay it all at the Redeemer's feet. We work out our salvation with fear and trembling and it is He that is working within us so that at the end it was all His work and none of ours. We rely on the power of the Spirit through the Word to accomplish what God is ordained to accomplish. So what are you relying on this morning? What are we relying on this morning? Well, in conclusion, that is the job description of biblical ministry. The labor of gospel ministry means we suffer for Christ. What are you suffering today? What are you enduring? How will you suffer for the sake of others to find their joy in Christ? It means we steward the word. How are you going to steward the word this week? How are you going to make Christ known in every place that God has placed you. It means we proclaim the gospel to everyone so that we'll help one another be complete in Christ. It means that we rely on the power of the Spirit, not the strength of the flesh. Is that what you'll do? Will you labor in gospel ministry? And if you're here today and you're not a believer, will today you cast yourself before the Savior's feet and commit your life to serve Him? And when our labors and our toil is over, may we join Charles Spurgeon with this statement. I find this astounding. He said this 18 years before he died. Spurgeon said, when you see my coffin carried to the silent grave, 
I should like every one of you, whether converted or not, to be constrained to say, he did earnestly urge us in plain and simple language not to put off the consideration of eternal things, but he did entreat us to look to Christ. If we come to the end of our days, whether it's the end of our life or the end of ministry that God gives us, may it be said that through us, through our labor, that Christ was made known and that he was made supreme in everything. That is the work of ministry. May we labor to that end. Let's stand. As we stand, we're going to respond with worship. And as we worship, let us pray that God will use his word in our life to this end. Father, thank you for your word. It is divinely inspired. Thank you for the attention of the people that have assembled here today. It is a grace for them to listen. And it is a gift for us to be able to sit and to feast on your word. May you now, Holy Spirit, work on our hearts. If there's one that's never been saved, may now they call upon Christ to save them. And may each of us commit ourselves to the labor of gospel ministry. And may we be faithful to the one who has saved us. In his name, amen.